First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, For a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, gird your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times For the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, 
not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Amen. Now that we have come to the epistle of First Peter, First and Second Peter, written by the Apostle Peter, Simon Peter. This epistle entails encouraging the persecuted, of the affliction of persecution specifically, that those believers who are experiencing the affliction of persecution, they should endure in the midst of it. This is one of the books of the Bible that focuses on persecution. We know the book of Psalms does, James does, 1 Peter does, Hebrews, the book of Revelation. These books are especially stressing the, the truth that believers will be persecuted by unbelievers in this life. What we find in 1 Peter, and as well these other books, we don't see the Apostle Peter mitigating your, the circumstances of believers in the midst of persecution. We don't see him alleviating the tension or the stress, the turmoil that we will experience when persecuted, which is opposite the general tendency. The general tendency is, well, you're being persecuted, so it's understandable if you sin in this way or in that way. It's understandable, so don't sweat it. We all experience it. After all, we're being persecuted. That is the tendency of the flesh, to do so, to think lightly of our sins in the midst of persecution. However, if we read this epistle, we see that this is not the case at all. If we read any of the other parts of the Bible just mentioned, it's not the case at all. Sin is not excused, judgment is not withheld, or judgment is not set aside for the believer simply because he's being persecuted. But while he's being persecuted, he's supposed to think about not sinning. And he's also supposed to think about the impending judgment of God. For example, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said in Matthew 10, 28, And do not fear those who kill the body, but afterwards are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And he's in Matthew 10, 28. In that section of Matthew 10, he is warning the believers that persecution awaits. If they persecuted the teacher, they will persecute his pupil. If they persecuted the master, they will persecute his slave. This is the way. That's what he's discoursing in Matthew chapter 10. That kind of persecution will happen. But there's no excuse to sin. But in fact, to mitigate or to turn away from sin, to 
avoid the sin that we might commit in persecution, he says, fear God who's able to destroy both your soul and body in hell. He highlights the judgment of God when we are tempted to sin. We'll find the same in 1 Peter. In chapters 1 to 5, in various places, he's going to bring to our remembrance what sin is in the midst of persecution and also remind us of the judgment of God. In verses 1 to 9, he's encouraging us. Encouraging us based on our station or our status before God. He's encouraging us as to who we are and what awaits us when we endure the persecutions, when we endure the afflictions of persecution. He encourages us here, and he intersperses this encouragement throughout his letter. But at the same time, there is not only encouragement, but there is also admonishment, such as, In verses 10 to 21, 10 to 21, admonishment, and then an exhortation to brotherly love in 22 to 25. In 10 to 21, the admonishment is especially in verses 13 and following when he calls on us to have our minds girded, our spirits sober, and we as children to be obedient, to be obedient children. Why? Because God, the Father, is a God who judges. He highlights the judgment of God in verse 17. These concepts, though very uncommon in common Christianity, are very common in the Bible. In the Bible, these concepts go together. These issues go together. But in common Christianity... There is the false hope and false assurance that all will be well, everything will be swelled, there won't be any problems. Actually, hardly anybody's going to hell in that theology. That's the way they look at the world. That's the way they perceive the gospel to be. But it's wrong. It's not that at all. This perspective of putting our hope in the life to come, meantime, when persecuted, We should remain on the straight path and keep in mind that we're going to one day see God and we ought to be pleasing to Him when He reveals Himself to us. That's essentially what He's teaching. Let's now go to verse 1. Verse 1 Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he is an apostle. There are many commoners and scholars who like to pit Peter against Paul, or Peter against Matthew, or Peter against Isaiah, so on. But we cannot do so. Peter and Paul are in agreement. Peter, in fact, commends Paul as our beloved brother Paul in 2 Peter 3, 14-18. He commends the Apostle Paul, as our beloved brother Paul, 2 Peter 3, 14 to 18. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was one of the first apostles, according to John chapter 1, one of the first apostles chosen before the others also came along. Peter, 
the brother of Andrew. He addresses his letter to those who reside as aliens. By aliens, he does not mean physical aliens. He's not talking about earthly citizenship. He's comparing it between earth and heaven. He means it that way. For example, in chapter 1, verse 17, he says, to conduct 117, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. The word stay implies a temporary lodging. The same in 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 2, 11. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. He reminds them again that they are aliens and strangers. He's not saying that because you are living in these various provinces of Rome, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and you're not living at home, it's really hard to live over there, and it's going to be an easier experience living at home in the land of Israel, because there you won't be persecuted, because there everything will go well. He doesn't mean it like that. The aliens and strangers has to do with realizing that our most important citizenship is a heavenly citizenship. So meantime, we need to live as strangers, aliens, sojourners, pilgrims in this world. He calls us chosen, verse 1. Chosen. Chosen by God. He doesn't mean chose, we chose God. He says are chosen, which means we received the benefit of being chosen. Who are chosen means God chose us. We do not choose God. God chooses us. God has a free will. We do not have a free will. We have a, a will enslaved to sin. But when God chooses us by His grace, then He delivers us from that condition. He chooses us. His will is free. Our will before conversion is in bondage, slavery to sin. Therefore, a slave or a will in bondage to sin cannot choose God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8.8. 8. Romans 8.8, 8, we cannot please God in the flesh. And verse 2, how did he redeem us? He chose us, but how did he do so? It says in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Foreknowledge in the scripture, it occurs here, it occurs in Acts chapter 2, 22 to 23. Acts 2, 22 to 23. It also occurs in the book of Romans, Romans 8, 28 to 30. Romans 8, 28 to 30. Also, our passage right here, 1 Peter 1, 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Another place is in chapter 1, 1 Peter 1, verse 20. 1 Peter 1, 
20, where it says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. What does foreknowledge mean? Most people, when they read this word, they immediately falsely conclude that it means to have advanced knowledge. To have advanced knowledge. Knowledge of something that will happen, God already knows it. But that's not what the biblical word is indicating. It is minimally indicating that, but that's not what it's really saying. By the way, those who think that it means God has knowledge of future events, they don't really believe that because they believe in in man's free will and therefore man's free will makes things unpredictable to God. And they call it, in their theology, they call it open theism, which, which is really not open theism, it's an idol. It's not open theism. Just like open borders does not mean the border is open like it's a wonderful place, we all live in peace. It's a destructive border. It's a traitorous border. It's not an open border. And the same with open theology. It's not open. God's not open to new information. No, that's heresy. So foreknowledge does not mean God knows in advance, nor does it mean according to the free will proponents who say that, that God doesn't know the future. Basically, they are being deceptive. They say foreknowledge means God knows the future, but they don't really believe God knows the future. So what does it mean? In the scripture, foreknowledge simply means that God chooses to love in advance. Chooses to love. The for, F-O-R-E, means in advance, but he chooses to love. How do we know this? We know that the word knowledge, according to Genesis 4, verse 1, means to love. And Adam knew his wife, literally, or in the NASB, Adam had relations with his wife, so he loved his wife in, in marital love. He, Adam, loved her. But also the aspect of choosing is in Genesis 18, 19, where it literally also says, for I have known him. The Lord is speaking about Abraham, and he says, I have known him. Well, is he speaking of bare knowledge? No, he's not. He's speaking of choosing Abraham. I have chosen to love Abraham. I, and and the NASB of Genesis 18, 19 actually translates that verb. In that case, it translates it as, I have chosen him. They render it, chosen him. And that's what is happening here. And the proof within 1 Peter is 1 Peter 1.20. How could it mean that in eternity past, God knew Jesus in the future? It doesn't mean that. What it means is that He chose to love him, set him aside as the son who would come into the world to die for our sins. So in advance, the father loved the son, chose him to send him into the world. That's what it means in 1 Peter 1.20. It has to do with God's 
choice of love or loving choice of whomever. In verse 2, it is the elect. In verse 20, it is his only begotten son. Then, verse 2, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The Father is the one who chooses to love us. It is the Spirit sent to set us apart to sanctify us. We who were in the realm of darkness, in the domain of darkness, we who belonged to the devil, we were children of the devil, he took us out of that realm and brought us into the realm of God, the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy God in in heaven, or as it says in verse 15, the Holy One. Verse 16, for I am holy. He brought us into that realm in his kingdom. Therefore, we have been sanctified. That is, delivered out of darkness into light, delivered out of Satan's kingdom into the kingdom of God, delivered out of uncleanness to cleanness. We have been washed. And that concept is there in verse 2, sprinkled with his blood. The irony, the paradox in Scripture is that we become white and clean by the blood of Christ. Our sins are washed away because the blood of Christ is sprinkled upon us, therefore we are cleansed. Now, for what end? To what end? He simply says in verse 2, that you may obey Jesus Christ. Look at that word, obey Jesus Christ. Same in 14, as obedient children. As obedient children. We already read as well in, it says that we, in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, that we should abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So there is obedience that is the result or the consequence of having faith in Jesus Christ. That's inescapable. How else can we read verse 2 or the rest of this letter or any other part of the New Testament? Obedience is a part of the Christian life. Obedience is not legalism, pharisaicalism, self-righteousness, works righteousness, works salvation. None of that. No. If we receive the grace of God by foreknowledge and the sanctifying work of the Spirit, its purpose is to obey Jesus Christ. That's why Jude says in Jude 4, our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude 4 our only Master and Lord, we are to obey Him. We are now His slaves. To us is wished right there in verse 2, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Grace and peace. Don't we already have grace? Don't we already have peace? Yes, 
We have a portion of God's grace. We have a portion of God's peace. We've been reconciled to God. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. We have peace with one another, where as in the past there was hostility. Now we have love and peace, harmony between each other, grace and peace. But what we have initially is not all that God has in store for us. He says there, fullest measure. May it be granted to us more. We need more grace every day. We need more peace every day. And this is the gift of God. The initial grace and peace are His gifts, but we also receive them every day to walk in a manner that pleases Him. That's the purpose of the grace and the peace. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God is praised. The God and Father of Christ is praised, not just any God or any deity. He is praised. Why? Because out of His great mercy, He caused us to be born again. This is one verse that teaches the order of salvation. In the order of salvation, are we possessors of free will and some grace so that we exercise our free will in faith and then when we believe we are born again, we are made born again? Does our faith produce our regeneration, our rebirth? Is that the way it works? Or are we dead in trespasses and sins? Ephesians 2.1 Are we incapable of pleasing God? Romans 8.8 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And therefore, does it require God, by His grace and solely by His grace, to work a miracle in us, to grant us rebirth, so that we have faith? Grant us rebirth, so that we believe. Is that the sequence? Yes, that's the biblical sequence. How did any man in this world produce his own birth? That's the analogy of verse 3. No man produced his own birth. No, his parents did. In the natural world, his parents are the ones that caused him to be born. So, if this analogy is to work, who is the one causing us to be born again? It says there, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He did it. He willed it, according to verses 1 and 2. He did it. He willed it. He caused our rebirth so that now we are able to believe. We are able to repent. We are able to obey in a manner that pleases Him. Not prior to it, only after He caused us to be born again. We didn't cause it, He caused it. The rebirth. And this hope, He calls it a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because Christ rose from the dead, 
He said, because I live, you shall live also. John 14, 19. Because I live, you shall live also. John 14, 19. And this is the hope. He rose from the dead, so we shall also rise from the dead. That's why he called himself the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. John eleven twenty five. Therefore, we have hope. If we have hope to be like Christ, raised from the dead one day, then anything we experience in this world is nothing compared to that. That's the way we should look at it in faith. Whatever afflictions, whatever persecutions, whatever slanders are pronounced against us shouldn't matter because we have a living hope to be just like Christ. And then he says in terms of the pledge or the deposit, verses 4 and following, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. This reminds us of clothing and precious metals that can become spoiled or moth-eaten, and our possessions on earth may be stolen. But he says here, the inheritance in heaven is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. There. It's reserved, which means it's guaranteed. It's not going to be taken away from us. It's not as though he seats us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus and then dethrones us whenever we sin, whenever we disobey. He doesn't enthrone us and then dethrone us, enthrone and dethrone. We don't go up to heaven and back down, up to heaven and back down. That's not the way the Bible describes it. We are reserved a place in heaven. It will indeed happen if we are true believers. Verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Again, he says, the salvation is ready to be revealed. Meantime, we are protected by the power of God through faith. God protects us by his power through our faith. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. 1 John 5, verse 4. 1 John 5, 4. God, in his power, keeps us in the faith to exercise faith, and this is our protection in the midst of the storms, in the midst of the onslaughts of persecution. Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. We greatly rejoice in the thought that in the last time, which is the return of Christ, when that happens, meantime, a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. When he says, if necessary, what he means is, as it is necessary 
for us to be distressed now, because he's going to say in verse 7 the reason, that the proof of your faith might be demonstrated. We are greatly rejoicing now because the world doesn't matter, the world to come matters, and the momentary nature of our afflictions he calls a little while. It's just a little while compared to eternity. Only a little while. Seven. But why now are we distressed by various trials? Verse seven. That the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the last time, when Jesus is revealed, when he returns, the proof of our faith needs to be demonstrated. Just like gold and silver are put in fire to purify, our faith is compared to gold and silver, tested by the fire of affliction, tested by the fire of persecutions. When we come forth as gold, when we come forth purified through these afflictions, that is, the sins in our life are one by one being removed from our souls. That's what he means here. Our sins are being removed as our faith is being purified. And then when we meet Christ, he's going to give us praise, glory, and honor. Praise, glory, and honor. Well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. This is now a commendation that though we have never seen Christ, we still believe in Him. We greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. He's alluding to the incident in John twenty twenty nine, John twenty twenty nine, when Thomas didn't believe until he saw Christ about a week later after the resurrection. He didn't believe. The other disciples were believing, but not yet Thomas. And then he tells him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who believe and yet do not see. There is a particular blessing for those who believe, though we have not seen Christ face to face. And we do have the ability to greatly rejoice. As he said in 6, and he says it again in verse 8, greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, though we haven't seen him. This is contrary to people who say, if I don't see, I won't believe. That's not faith. That's unbelief. And there's no mercy with God. Simply because you don't see Christ face to face doesn't mean he's not going to hold you accountable. He will hold you accountable. It's even a greater benefit to believe when you don't see. 
Then finally, verse 9, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. What is more important in life? What is more important? The salvation of our souls is most important. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Matthew 16, 24 to 28. There's nothing. There's nothing in the world. The soul is most important. That's why the Bible focuses on the soul. This focus on salvation is not a new focus. This focus on Christ is not novel. It cannot be called strange. It cannot be called heretical. Why? Because the prophets of old believed in Christ also. The prophets of the Old Testament, from the book of Genesis, from Genesis chapters 3 and 4 onward, from Adam, Abel, Seth, to Enoch, to Noah, and Abraham, and so forth, they all, they believed in the coming death and resurrection of Christ. Since they believe that way, we are in good company. We believe that way. They did not see, most of them, did not see Christ in any way. A few did in his Christophanies, appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. Some of them did, but not every single person did. They didn't see him in his incarnation. We also do not see him in his incarnation. We are after the incarnation. Only a privileged few during his 33 years of ministry or life, uh, three and a half years of ministry, but 33 and a half years of life, that's the only group that actually saw him in his incarnation while on the earth during his first coming. But all who preceded him like the prophets and all who succeeded him like us, we don't see him. But our faith or the object of our faith is one and the same person. It is Jesus Christ and with one purpose, one accomplishment, that is to die and rise again for our sins. That's what Peter says here. Verse 10. As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. He tells us that this salvation, what salvation? The salvation he just described in verses 1 to 9. Right? In verse 9 he says, the salvation of your souls. Then verse 10, as to this salvation, our salvation is the same because our faith is in the same person and same work in Jesus Christ. They predicted it, they prophesied of it, of this grace of God, they were very curious not to know the truth. They knew the truth. They believed in the truth. They were curious to know the person and time. Would they be alive to see the incarnation of Christ? Would they be alive to see the Son of God in 
the flesh. That's what their curiosity was in verse 11. <clears throat> what person or time? The person or the time? This is why in Luke 2, Luke 2, 25 to 32, or 25 to 35, Luke 2, 25 to 35, remember there was a Simeon of Jerusalem, and Simeon was told that he would not taste death or see death before he saw the Lord's Christ. He was promised that before he died, he would see the Christ. That desire, that joy that Simeon had, Simeon of Jerusalem in Luke 2, 25-35, that Simeon was able to see Christ before he died. This was the same kind of hope that the prophets had. They wanted to be alive. Just as many of us, we wished we were alive 2,000 years ago. Yet God has privileged only some to experience that. The rest of us have to see in advance or see from behind. See behind. And the same Spirit. Notice verse 11. The Spirit of Christ within them. They had the Spirit of Christ. We have the Spirit of Christ. What did the Spirit of Christ preach? The sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. That's the death, resurrection, ascension, um, session, return of Christ, eternal judgment, eternal heaven, and hell. These are the glories that follow. But first, the sufferings. Sufferings, then glories. That's the pattern. It happened to Christ. He suffered first, glory second. And that's the pattern for us. Suffer first, glory second. It's not glory first, suffering second. It's glory first, suffering second for the reprobate. They want to enjoy this life, meaning indulge in this life, and not repent of sin. They want glories now, but they're going to experience sufferings later. In the case of the elect, it's sufferings now, glories later. And whatever the prophets wrote, whatever was revealed to them was for our benefit. That's why they recorded their words. Because God commanded them to write their words so that we might read about what was going to happen. Just as they anticipated it, we read it from the other side of history and read back into the Old Testament and see, yes, this passage or that passage is about the gospel of Christ. And this is so important, crucial, essential, that it says the Holy Spirit sent from heaven is accomplishing this. And it is so good, so enjoyable, so vast, that the angels long to look. If the angels, he he means the good angels, the good angels, the elect angels, long to look into these matters, so should we. If they are filled with curiosity, so should we. If we don't, then why are we doing less than the angels? We should. 13. 
Now he turns to call our attention to the need for obedience and conformity to God. That is especially the case in verses 13 to 19, but we'll go 13 to 21 is the paragraph. 13. Therefore, gird your minds for action. He said, therefore, if all of these blessings and this unity we have with the previous saints, if this is the case, then we should be just like them. How were they? Gird your minds for action. To gird is to tie the belt around the waist. When we tie the belt around the waist, we're ready to act, we're ready to work so that our pants don't slip, right? So when we do the same with our minds, our minds should not be slipping. Our minds should not be loose. Our minds should be tight and fixed and ready to work. Our minds. In the scripture, we do not loosen the mind. We do not release the mind. We do not empty the mind. Pagan religions encourage that. Hinduism, Buddhism encourage that. In fact, actually, all unbelievers in one way or another are not girding their minds because they live a life of insanity, of wicked madness. Ecclesiastes 10, 12, and 13. Wicked madness Ecclesiastes 10, 12 to 13, which means they're not using their minds properly. If they use their minds properly, they would prepare for the day of judgment. They would believe in the gospel of Christ. They would believe Jesus died and rose again for them, but they're not. But we should also keep sober in spirit. Sobriety in the natural realm usually relates to not being addicted to drunkenness, drugs, and whatever. Whatever might make us be unsober or drunk. Not using our minds in a sober, alert fashion. When we are alert, then we are useful to God. But not when we are unsober or drunk. He says, keep sober in spirit. Further, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We should have a fixed hope completely. Do, you, do we see the strong words of action and exertion? Gird, keep sober, fix. This is the active Christian life. This is the way it should be. No twiddling of the thumbs always engaged in doing the will of God. Because there is a grace, again, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The grace that we have now is a kind of anticipatory grace of the full grace we will receive when He returns. It's in small measure now, it will be completed in full measure when He returns. Always thinking about we are going to see Christ. He will return. Be ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the attitude of the Christian. Those who are not 
what do they do? They are like the unfaithful slave of Matthew 24, 45 to 51. The unfaithful slave, he's the one who says, my master's not coming for a long time so I can live as I want. I can beat the fellow slaves, I can get drunk, I can do whatever I want. No. In the intermediate period, we are living a life of obedience and holiness. 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. We are called here obedient children, as obedient children, not disobedient children, which parents and others want to be around disobedient children. Even obedient children don't like to be around disobedient children. And adults don't like to be around disobedient children. But what about God? If we are His children, we should be obedient. Not conformed to the way we used to live. We didn't know better in many ways. We weren't taught. Now we are taught. Now we do know. Now our eyes have been opened. We're not ignorant anymore. So now that we have knowledge, true knowledge, we should be obedient. And how? 15. Like the Holy One who called you. The Holy One of heaven called us. The Holy Spirit, verse 12, indwells us. Verse 2, the Holy Spirit sanctified us, set us apart, consecrated us to live in purity. If that's the case, then he says, 15 again, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Holiness, not unholiness, holiness. 16, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Taken from Leviticus eleven forty four to 45. Leviticus eleven forty four to 45, verse 16. You shall be holy, for I am holy. See how the Apostle Peter, he incorporates the holiness of the Old Testament and joins it with the holiness of the New Testament. God said in the Old Testament He's holy. He hasn't changed His character. He's also holy now. And therefore, if we are His children, we must also be holy. Matthew 5.48 Therefore, you are to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Perfection or holiness is the goal. Attainable only at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yet we strive for it now, every day. 17. Notice 17. And if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. If you address as Father, think about that. These days, when... Popular culture and even Christian culture speaks of God as Father, they think of Him as someone who can be manipulated, someone who will give them everything they want, everything they ask, that He is only full, has His pockets full of candy to distribute to His children all the time. 
Yet that's not the way the Bible looks at God as Father. Yes, He is a loving Father who will not give to His children uh, a snake. He's not going to give a scorpion. No, He's going to give bread and He'll give an egg, but not a snake or a scorpion to His children. In that way, He's loving. And according to verse 2, He was so loving that He granted us grace for our salvation. Yes, those are true. But... People conceive of God as Father to the exclusion of His holiness, exclusion of His righteousness, to the exclusion of His judgment. And yet, that is the attribute, or these are the attributes, that the Apostle Peter highlights here. Verse 17, from 13 to 17. He says, If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges... The impartial judge is our Father. Our Father is the impartial judge. If He's an impartial judge, then there is no manipulation of God. We cannot snooker God to do something for us. We must live righteously. And He's going to judge each man's work. Therefore, while we're on the earth, conduct ourselves in fear, in fear. There is, in the New Testament, a stress on fearing God. Not fearing man. Those who fear man do not fear God. But there is a healthy, wholesome, righteous fear of God. Hebrews 12.28, Hebrews 12.28 says, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 28 to 29. And as we already cited, Matthew 10, 28. Rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. 2 Corinthians 7 1. 2 Corinthians 7 1. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now he returns to gratitude. Yes, we should fear God, but we should also have an attitude that's grateful to God. 18. Why? Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. We weren't redeemed by gold and silver. We were not redeemed that way. We had a futile way of life. Our ancestors, our forefathers, did not teach us anything did not help us with anything. That's generally true, except for the elect and their children. But otherwise, generally speaking, in paganism, even in common Judaism, in common Christianity, our forefathers did not teach us the true gospel. Therefore, we inherited their feudal ways. 
That's the way we used to be, but now what? Because of the grace of God, verse 19, now with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, we were redeemed by his blood, not the blood of an animal, but by the blood of Christ. Keeping that in mind, why are we not living for Christ? He graced us with this redemption by coming into the world, suffering on our behalf, rising from the dead, and then by the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit, applied the work of redemption to our souls to redeem us. 20 to 21. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the eternal purpose of God, granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. 2 Timothy 1.9. Same is expressed here. 2 Timothy 1.9 and 1 Peter 1.20-21. That is, before the foundation of the world, God prepared, God planned, God orchestrated, God appointed, He foreknew on our behalf in the last times that Christ would come into the world and pay for the sins of the elect. He came in the last times to do so. And through him, we are believers in God. That too is an expression of grace. Through him are believers in God. Not because of our will, but through him. Through the grace of Christ, we are believers in God, who raised Christ up from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. As God prepared the way for Christ and raised him and exalted him to heaven, our faith and hope are in the same God. 22. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. When the truth of the gospel was preached, it was commanded to us, repent and believe in the gospel, Mark 1.15. In obedience to that command to believe, our souls were purified. To what end? To what end was our soul purified? He says, for a sincere love of the brethren. Not insincere, but sincere. A genuine, a true love of the brethren. That was the goal. And since that was the goal, Fervently love one another from the heart. From within, have a diligent, passionate, sincere love for one another. 1 Peter 1.22 is similar to 1 John 4.20-21. Peter's saying, if you have your faith and hope in God, if you truly do love God, then the result should be the way you love one another. That's going to be the proof of it. That's the simple statement. If you love God, then you'll love your brother. 
1 John 4, 20 to 21. 1 John 4, 20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. 23, 1 Peter 1, 23. Why is it that the truth produces this? Verses 23 to 25. What is this truth he's talking about? For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all is glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. The truth of 22 is the seed of 23, is the living and abiding word of God of 23, and it is superior because it's eternal, not like the grass and the flowers in the field, 22, the word of the Lord abides forever. And that's the word that was preached. The word of God remains forever, stands forever. It will last forever and ever. That word, which is the truth, the gospel, the word of Christ, that word was preached to us, and that's the word that the Spirit used to cause us to be born again. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to produce a child of God. The Spirit of God, that was in 1 Peter 1, verse 20. Uh, sorry, 1 Peter 1, verse 2. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. The sanctifying work of the Spirit. But what was the practical instrument that the Spirit used? The internal work was the work of the Spirit. But the practical instrument was the Word of the Lord. The word preached, the word of Christ, the truth of the gospel, the living and abiding word of God. There is no salvation unless the Spirit of God uses the word of God to produce a child of God. Keeping that in mind, then look back at verse 23. Remember he told us to love one another? Why? For you have been born again of this word of God. If we've been born again of this word of God, the word of God from its inception, when we hear the true gospel, teaches us to love one another and prove we love God. From its inception also, we are brought into the same family of God. And isn't it proper, natural, good, civil, for those children in the same family to learn to love one another because they have the same parents. They're supposed to love one another, have a particular and special concern for each other. That's how they're taught since they're small. They're taught to be that way. Well, God does the same. Since we are all born again through the living and abiding word of God, the truth, that same truth, is our resource, is our source for knowing and encouraging and admonishing each other to love one another. That's what he's saying in verses 22 to 25. This same word 
among the children of God should cause us to love one another. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.